Vanamali Gita Yoga Ashram, Rishikesh, North India, situated on the bank of the holy river Ganga at the foothills of the Himalayas. This is the 19th talk in the series and is on the 18th chapter of the Srimad Bhagavad Gita. It is entitled Moksha Sanyasa Yoga or the Yoga of Liberation to Renunciation.
ಇಷ್ಟೋಸ್ತಿ ಮೇ ದೃಢಮಿದೀ ತದೋ ವಕ್ಷಿ ಮನ್ಮಯಾಭವಮಕ್ತೋ ಮಧ್ಯಾಜೀ ಮಾಂ ನಮಸ್ಕುರು ಮಾಮೇ ವೈಶ್ಯಸ್ತಿ ಸತ್ಯಂತೆ ಪ್ರತಿಜಾನೆ ಪ್ರಿಯೋಸಿ ಮೇ ಶರಣಿಮಾಶ್ರೂಷವೇವಾಚ್ಯೋಗ್ಯತೂಯತಿ ಯಮಂಪರಮಂಗುಷ್ಯಂಗುಷ್ಯಂಗುಷ್ಯಂಗುಷ್ಯಂಗುಷ್ಯಂಗುಷ್ಯಂಗುಷ್ಯಂಗ
by Krishna. He knows the meaning of the two as commonly understood. Tyaga is always thought of as the physical renunciation of desirable objects. And sannyas includes this as well as the physical renunciation of life in the world and therefore of all actions. In answering him, the Lord sums up the entire teaching of the Gita. The frequent harping of the Gita on this crucial distinction has been justified by the subsequent history of India with its constant confusion about these two different yet similar things. This confusion has led to the strong bent in belittling any activity. In the previous chapter, the Lord has stated that acts of yetnya, sacrifice, charity and austerity should never be renounced. Even in these, he has said that only the sattvic type amongst these three should be followed. In the fifth chapter, he has extolled karma sannyas, or action in inaction. So what is his final word on this subject? For on that hangs the entire teaching of the Gita. Indian thought from those times right up to the present day has misunderstood the meaning of these words and condemned action to an inferior position since action was thought to be the culprit which forges the chain of karma. Even the actions insisted on by the Gita like yetnya, dana and tabas are at best considered to be only a preliminary to the supreme inaction of sannyas, which was considered to be the only way to self-realization. This immediately cuts the ground from under the feet of 99% of the world's population who would find it impossible to take to a life of sannyas in the conventional sense. The glory of the Gita's teachings is that it brings sannyas out of the forests and mountains and caves of classic thought into the heart and home, office and factory of daily life. The Gita's stand is the complete opposite of the traditional view. It insists that the real Tyaga has action and living in the world as its basis and not a flight to the forest. Real Tyaga is not renunciation of action but renunciation of the desire for the fruits of action and that is synonymous with real sannyas. Tyaga, according to the Lord, is the mental renunciation of all clinging attachment to the fruit of our works, or to the action itself, or to our personal initiation of it. In this sense, Tyaga may be even better than sannyas, which is normally understood as the mere physical renunciation of objects. It is not that the desirable action should be laid aside, but the desire which prompts the action which should be given up. The fruit may or may not come, but the action itself has to be done as kartavyam karma. Success or failure 
is in the hands of the Supreme and he will regulate them according to his omniscient will and purpose. In the end, all action has to be given up, not physically by inertia or immobility, but spiritually to the master of our being and the Lord of all action, by whose power alone the work can be accomplished. The next thing which we have to renounce is the false idea of ourselves as the doer. It is the Lord's universal Shakti which works through the God of our individual personality. This spiritual transference of all our actions and the dedication of the fruits to the Lord is the real sannyas according to the Gita. The next doubt which might occur to Arjuna and through him to all of us is whether there are any prohibited actions. Are all actions allowed? To this the Lord gives an emphatic reply. All action can be done, to which the touchstone of renunciation of fruit can be applied. By their very nature, evil action will fall off by themselves when we apply this device of renunciation of fruit. No amount of euphemistic thinking can make us believe that murder theft or slander can be condoned, for it is pretty certain that we cannot renounce the fruits of such actions. So when in doubt as to the quality of the action we are doing, this is a sure method of deciding. The Lord reiterates that the three sattvic actions of yatna, dana, and tabas, as clarified in the previous chapter, should be continued, for they purify even the wise. To renounce these actions under the mistaken view that their rejection will lead to liberation is tamasic renouncement. To renounce them because they are troublesome or due to physical weariness is rajasic. Sattvic renunciation is to withdraw not from the action but from the demand of the ego behind it. It is to do the work as dictated by the strong faith or shraddha of the person or because it is dictated by the law of right living of the Shastras to which he adheres or if it is dictated by the will of the Lord with his mind attuned to him in yoga without attachment to the fruit. There should be no attachment to pleasant, successful or lucrative work and no aversion to unpleasant work which might bring physical and mental suffering. The wise man puts aside the doubts and hesitations of the normal desire-filled individual and follows the highest ideal of his nature, which is the will of the Lord within. He does not even hanker for the fruits of heaven and the hereafter as the religious man does. The law of karma decrees three types of results for any action, pleasant, unpleasant, and mixed. But none of these three touch the liberated soul who is freed from the bonds of karma. 
the Lord then goes on to enumerate the five causes or requisites for the accomplishment of any action as given by the philosophy of the Sankhyas. The first is Adhishtana or the foundation of the body, mind, intellect. Next is the Karta or the doer of the action. Third is the Karana or the instrumentation of nature. Cheshta or the different types of activities. And finally the fifth, Daiva or the unseen universal power which is the deciding factor behind the success or failure of an action. These five together make up the efficient cause of all the works that man undertakes. He who thinks of his limited individual personality as the doer is deluded, but he who knows the universal spirit and his universal Shakti as the doer and himself to be only the instrument. He acts not, he slays not, even though he slays all these people, he is not bound. Arjuna is guiltless, so Arjuna, with the hands of the Lord, has no claim to do with it and cannot be told or blamed for the work of destruction. It is said that Gandhari, the mother of the Kauravas, at the end of the battle, curses Krishna and not Bhima for the destruction of her sons, for she realized that he alone, in his role as the universal chastiser, was responsible for the act of destruction. This work of destruction was needed so that humanity might move forward to another creation, to the kingdom of Dharma, as personified by the Pandavas. Arjuna was to act not for himself but for the furtherance of the cosmic purpose. In fact, at the end of the war, far from having got any personal gain, he had lost almost everything he held dear, his brilliant sons. Work, therefore, is not what binds us to the wheel of karma. The knowledge with which we do the work is what makes the important spiritual difference. In the mechanics of action, three things which impel us are knowledge, the object of knowledge, and the knower. The agent, the action itself, and the organ of action are the constituents of action. The knower is the individual who takes in the information through the senses and feels that he knows. He is the same as the agent or commander of the action. The object of knowledge is what is experienced through the senses and that which he wishes to gain. Knowledge is what is gained by the mind through the sense of organs. Having come into contact with the object, into this action of knowing also comes the working of the three gunas. It is the element of the gunas in them that makes the difference in our view 
of the thing known and the spirit in which the work is done. The Lord goes on to differentiate between the three types of knowledge, action, agent, intellect, and determination which constitute any action. Sattvic knowledge sees the one indivisible whole, the imperishable being in all becomings. The principle of the sattvic man's action is related to the total purpose of existence. More and more, the sattvic actor reflects the divine will and grows slowly into a faultless instrument in the hands of the divine. Rajasic knowledge is that which sees only the multiplicity of things and is incapable of discovering the true principle of unity. This knowledge is a jumble of various types of learning put together in order to make some sense of the existing confusion in the mind. It promotes a restless action with no firm governing law. Thomasic knowledge is a lazy, narrow-minded, and obstinate way of looking at everything. It sees nothing beyond what it wants to see. Through a vision of the world, gained by unauthentic means, but which it regards as infallible, despite every effort made by others to disabuse it of its obstinacy. The sattvic action is done in the clear light of reason, without any personal bias and without any desire for the fruit. At its highest culminating point, it becomes the action which is solely dictated by the spirit within us and not even by our intelligence, however lofty it might be. Such an action is totally free from ego and the limitation of even the best opinion, noblest desire, or loftiest mental ideal. In their place will be the complete assurance of an infallible power which is acting through us. Jajasic action is that which a man undertakes with a view to gain alone. It is done with strain and an inflated sense of ego in order to achieve the fruits of its desire. Thomasic action is undertaken with a mistaken idea of its fruits, no idea of how it should be done, no consideration of how it might prove harmful to others, and not even much idea of one's own ability to accomplish the action. In other words, it proves to be of no use either to oneself or to others. It is a waste of effort from beginning to end, unlike the Rajasic action, which may well bring name and fame and the desired result to its agent, who does it with effort, perhaps, but with determination. Now what about the three types of agents? The sattvic doer is egoless and free from passionate attachments, either to the action or to its fruit. His mind is unelated by success and undepressed by failure. And he has a pure and selfless enthusiasm for the work on hand, however small 
or insignificant it might seem to others. He is fixed in the knowledge of the divine purpose of his actions and the scorn or praise of the world has no effect on him. It can neither deter him nor encourage him for he knows no law but that of the divine. The sattvic doer strives to become the perfect instrument. In him, all personal ego slowly becomes obliterated. The rajasic doer is passionately attached to the fruits and thus negligent of the action itself. He thinks that any means can be employed to gain the desired ends, caring little whom he injures so long as he gets what he wants. Greedy, impure and violent, he jumps with joy at success and slums in despair at failure. The tamasic doer, on the other hand, is lazy, procrastinating, and obstinate in his stupidity. He does things in a purely mechanical fashion, totally uninterested in what he is doing, making no effort to do a good job, following the most vulgar opinion of the herd, and taking a foolish pride in his wrongdoing. Narrow, brute cunning replaces intelligence and he has an insolent contempt for his superiors and a total lack of sincerity. He is slow to act, easily depressed and gives the whole thing up at the slightest provocation. Having given a brilliant analysis of the three types of knowledge, action, and agent. The Lord goes on to clarify the different types of intelligence and determination with which the actor works. It is the buddhi or intellect which decides for the actor the type of action he chooses. It is that which decides for him what is right and what is wrong, dharma or adharma. The sattvic understanding immediately assesses what should be done and what should be avoided. With due respect to the right place and time, this assessment is made not from the point of view of personal gain, but from the point of view of the ultimate liberation of the spirit. In other words, the intelligence of the sattvic doer immediately gauges the merits of an action on its spiritual scale, whether it will fetter him to the chain of karma or whether it will release him. The rajasic intellect is also capable of making the right judgment, but his reason is a slave to desire and is capable of distorting the truth so as to serve the selfish purpose of the ego. He assesses everything through the highly colored glasses of personal gain so that even adharma can be justified because it helps him to gain the fruits of his desire. Greed, desire and anger are the hallmarks of the rajasic intellect, the triple gate to hell, as Lord Krishna has already said. The tamasic intellect being enveloped in ignorance, sees, misunderstands, and misinterprets 
everything. That which is right, it sees as wrong, and vice versa. It persists in its wrong understanding and insists stubbornly that it is right. No amount of advice or persuasion can deter it from the senseless path of its own ignorant choice. It dwells on the fears and depressions of the mind, which keeps it weak and cowardly. The action to which this intellect urges will naturally produce no fruit or very poor fruit. Sattvic determination engages in those activities which produce spiritual evolution. Despite all the difficulties on the path, the sattvic doer continues with his yogic practices with great determination. Rajasic firmness, on the other hand, assiduously goes after the first three purusharthas or goals of life, dharma or virtue, artha or wealth, and karma or pleasure. These three are equally firmly pursued by the rajasic man for purely selfish reasons. The firmness with which the deluded mind clings to sleep, fear, worry, and pride can be called tamasic. Even when someone points out a way to the tamasic man to get rid of his fears and worries, he will not take it, for he derives a perverse pleasure in them. Directly or indirectly, happiness is the universal pursuit of mankind. Pain is an exception which we accept when we have to. But our notion of happiness differs with the differences in our gunas. The sattvic nature which seeks the happiness of the higher mind does not depend on outer things, but only on its own inner serenity. But this serenity has to be achieved through a strict self-discipline, which may mean a loss of our habitual pleasures in the beginning, but which in the end will put an end to all sorrow as we rise on the spiritual plane. As has been said before, the sattvic determination does not balk at the strict discipline entailed in following the path of yoga, for it knows that despite the temporary discomforts, the end results will be blissful. The rajasic man, on the other hand, derives his happiness from the keenly felt joy of the senses and body, which are like nectar to him in the beginning, but which eventually lead him worn and unhappy. He is left with the drop of poison in the dregs of the cup, which he has emptied with such gusto, leading to disappointment, disgust, and disease. Be because these pleasures in themselves are not the thing which the spirit in us truly demands from life. The tamasic happiness is derived from sleep, sloth, and inertia. Nature has endowed the tamasic mind with a smug satisfaction in its own vulgar joys and trivial pleasures. Up to this, the discussion has been on the effect of the gunas on the mind and its actions. The development of the individual out of the lower nature of rajas tamas and tamas to sattva 
and from them to the freedom of the spirit is the goal of evolution and the goal of the Gita's teaching. Though this is the general rule of mind and action for all men, yet we see that there is a law of variation for each individual according to his swabhava. The Gita has already mentioned this in the second chapter, and Arjuna was asked to follow his swadharma, the kshatriya dharma, which is Arjuna's law of action as according to his swabhava or nature. The law of one's own nature is preferable to the rule of another's being, says the Lord. For in that way, we will be following the natural way of evolution. This swadharma, or natural bent, is of four kinds, formulated outwardly in the four castes or orders of the old Indian social system, which exist even today in all societies, even though they may not be clearly delineated. These four typify the fundamental types of nature as found in all mankind. The Indian social system decreed that the work and function of each man in society should correspond to his type or nature. These four types were known as Brahmanas, Kshatriyas, Vaishyas and Shudras. The differences in their natures are mainly due to the different differing portions of sattva, rajas, and tamas in their ma mental makeup. It must be noted that though these names refer to the names of the four castes, in the Gita they refer to the quality of the person's disposition and not merely to their caste. These verses have been picked out by certain fundamentalists as a sanction for the present caste system. The present system is a rigid thing fixed by birth alone, whereas the ancient system of Chaturvarma or the fourfold division depended on the quality of the mind on which the economic division was based. We cannot be so absurd as to suppose that the Gita advocates that a man should follow his parents' profession regardless of the bent of his own mind and personal capacity. The Gita's words refer to the ancient system when it existed in its ideal purity. It had a social, economic, cultural, and spiritual aspect. It recognized the four functions of social life which exist even today, intellectual, political, economic, and servile. These are the basic needs of society, giving rise to the different types of work. Ministration to the spiritual needs, producing the best in knowledge and wisdom. Government, politics, administration, and war. The work of production and business, and the work of hired labor. This classification of society into these groups is for the constructive, cooperative, and wholesome existence 
of society. They represent the blend of spiritual power, political power, economic power, and manpower necessary for social solidarity and the wholesome existence of any society. This system was not confined to India alone, but we find it in the social ev evolution of all ancient societies. These four functions are still inherent in the life of all normal communities, even though the original clear-cut divisions no longer exist. In India, along with the economic division, there was a cultural standard which was set up for each class a set of customs, educational discipline, family ideals, and there was a constant endeavor to keep up to their own specific ideals. Even to this day, this endeavor exists and is successful to a large extent, which is the reason why the Indian cultural heritage has remained intact through the centuries of time. Finally, in India, this system had a profound spiritual significance. The swabhava, or the inherent nature of the individual, was what had to be the guide and deciding factor of his swadharma, or rule of conduct an action in life. This Swabhava was the principle of divinity working within him to promote his spiritual evolution, as has been mentioned in the Gita. And this is why the Gita places its seal of approval on the system. The Lord says that it is better to follow our Swadharma, even though apparently inferior, than to follow the Swadharma of another, which may appear to be superior. To take the example of Arjuna, his Swabhava, or innate qualities of nature, have made him fit to lead the life of a Kshatriya, or ruler, and even though he may consider the ascetic life of a Brahmin to be superior, it would be wrong for him at the moment to renounce his Swadharma and take up another, for that would be contrary to the rule of his nature and therefore contrary to the cosmic law of spiritual evolution which proceeds step by step. This was the ideal of the Chadurvarna, or duties according to the station in life as expounded by the Gita. Thus we see that in its ideal state, this fourfold division was a wonderful thing for any society. But of course, in practice, heredity soon became the principle for deciding the Swadharma, and the son of a Brahmin came to be called a Brahmin, even though he might have had nothing of the typical Brahmin in him. This was an inevitable evolution, because the internal signs were not easily apparent, and birth was a more handy criterion. The lack in character was generally made up with education and training. Thus the importance of following the Swadharma, which the Gita asserts, is due to the emphasis on the inner truth of nature from which arises its spiritual significance. In fact, the Gita lays very little stress 
on the external rule. It stresses the individual and spiritual value of this law and not its communal, social, or economic value. Just as we find that the Gita accepted the ancient Vedic view of sacrifice but gave it a profound spiritual significance, so also it accepts the theory of costs but gives it a completely novel orientation. What the Gita is concerned is not with the upholding of the Aryan social order, but the upkeeping of man's outward life to his inner growth. This can clearly be seen when we look at the verses 41 to 48, which deals with the castes. The Lord describes the functions of a Brahmin, Kshatriya, etc., not in terms of his work in society, but purely from the standpoint of his psychology. The characteristics of each type is due to the admixture of the three gunas in him. For instance, he in whom sattva predominates can be called a Brahmin. His qualities as born from his swabhava or inherent nature are control of the mind and senses, purity, honesty, forgiveness, acquiring the knowledge of the Vedas and of the Atman, etc. The professions of teaching, religious ministration, and so on are only the outer and most suitable field for this inner development. So it is the Swabhava which should point out the way for our swadharma, or work in life. This is such a misunderstood point in the Gita, but there is a great need to reiterate it. The Kshatriya's inborn qualities are bravery, swiftness, courage, dexterity, giving of charity, government, etc. And the fields in which he can best cast into form the law of his nature are government, politics, and war. Rajas mixed with sattva is the predominating quality of the kshatriya, and to expect a hyperactive person with kshatriya qualities to sit silent and meditate would be to go against the law of his nature and would thus lead to his downfall, for he would be an utter failure in that, nor would he be able to fulfill the natural commitments of life which nature had best suited him for and by following which he would have evolved.
Amor